0: Greetings, travelers. Welcome back to Tales from the Enchanted Forest with your animal
1: companions, Box, and Sparrow. Hey, travelers. Woohoo, we're back for another episode, and this one, it's holiday-themed. Is it holiday-themed? Technically, if you squint, it's holiday-themed. Ah, okay. So we have something for those
0: of you that like the holidays, and for those of you that don't like the holidays. <laughs> So if you've been following us on Twitter or on our website, you will know that today's story comes from Norway, from our favorite fairy tale and folklore collectors, Peter Christian Bornsson and Jorgen Moe. The original title was The Quern That Stands and Grinds at the Bottom of the Sea, but when it was translated by George Webb Descent, it swapped to Why the Sea is Salt, to follow in the footsteps of lots of other Y-type explanatory fables. The story can be linked back to what is called The Grotes Song, Or the Mill Song, which is an old Norse poem about two slave girls who are forced by Danish King Frodi to work a magic grindstone and sing for his household. As they go about creating his household wealth, they tell the king how they will destroy him with an approaching army.
1: (laughs) That's gotta be fun to listen to. We're singing about your doom and demise. (laughs) Well, I feel like he deserves it for enslaving them. No kidding, but I feel like... That type of talk would earn them some beheadings or something like that. It it seems like kings like to take drastic death leaps, so I'm not sure why he didn't go there. I think it was because,
0: well, I will talk about this as one of my five fantastic finds, so I don't want to say too much. So stick around to the end of the episode to figure out why he didn't just behead them as uh, Sparrow
1: would. Well, Evil
0: Tyrant Sparrow.
1: That aside, this type of story that we're about to cover cover so many of my favorite elements of folklore and fairy tales. It's trying to explain something that's normal in the world that we might not have an obvious answer for. It's got bizarre storyline and you don't really see where it's going until right at the end and you're like, oh, cool. And I love that. <laughs> <laughs> it's So chaotic. Um, and it has a Christmas element. So it, it's one of those things where you can argue like, oh, it's Christmas, but it's not Christmas. It's like Die Hard. I'm comparing this story to Die Hard. That's a weird thing to do.
0: (laughs) It's Christmas, but not Christmas, but Christmas enough that we can say it's Christmas without it being fully Christmas that we have to put like a Kris Kringle on it.
1: But with all that said, if you ever wondered why the sea is salty or not, wonder no longer, for I, Sparrow, have a tale to tell of why the sea is salt. Once upon a time, there were two brothers. While both brothers grew up in the same family, one became very rich, while the other became very, very poor. Now, I mentioned that this is a Christmas story, not a Christmas story. The reason for that is this happens on Christmas Eve. What? So one fateful Christmas Eve, the poor brother had no food to feed himself or his wife. In his desperation, he went to his brother and asked in God's name if he would give him anything to eat. Now, we all know this friend or family member who's always looking for a handout, and in the rich brother's case, he had just about enough of this. So the rich brother says that he will give him a sizable ham if he agrees to do one thing. Not seeing any possible way this could backfire, the poor brother quickly agrees and thanks him. With that, the rich brother tosses him the ham and tells him to go straight to hell. This is why you need to always ask for more details before making deals with your siblings. I always love when
0: there's stories about two brothers, and it's obvious that one of them is going to be awful, and one of them is going to be like, oh, I'm so poor, and I just need some food and money. But we never actually get to know the backstory, so maybe the poor brother actually just doesn't like to work, and the rich brother has to work really hard for everything he has.
1: Who are we to judge? I don't know. The story clearly does not give the details, but I can also... Easily imagine that this is just a regular annoyance for him, but also mm-hmm. he could have some deep seated issues like maybe mother loved the poor brother more and now he's just taking his revenge. I don't know.
0: Or, I mean, there's also the possibility that he's just a bad person and we're like, excuses, excuses. I did tell him
1: to go straight to hell, so that's not a good move either way, bro. It is Christmas after all.
0: And it's also kind of humiliating. Like, you go up to someone and you beg them for food so that you don't starve, and
1: then they say, here,
0: just go to hell. Just don't give it to him in that case.
1: Not being one to go back on his word, the poor brother shrugs, takes the ham, and starts walking. He walks the whole day and well into dusk when he saw a bright light. He turned and saw an old man with a long white beard who was totally in no way Santa standing outside an outhouse. I don't know if this is actually Santa or not, but the description is very clearly an old white man with white beard, everything that checks off Santa being Santa, but there's nothing actually to indicate he is Santa, so it's a really- But we're also
0: in Norway, so everyone is a white man with
1: a white beard. True, but they said Christmas, therefore. Any old man with a white beard- (laughs) Is Santa on Christmas. (laughs) That is the true superpower. On Christmas Day, you get that superpower ability.
0: Well, I don't know. He might be a devil in disguise or something.
1: Ooh. Who knows? Either way, this old man, whether he be Santa or not, asked the poor man where he was going with the ham, to which he replied that he was going to hell, but he was not sure he was going the right way. The old man explained that this, pointing to the outhouse, was hell. Man, that is
0: some outhouse. So I was determined to find some connection between outhouses and devils. And I've looked through books, I've looked through articles, I looked through blogs and the best I could find was that there are holes in outhouses and that could be a symbol for tunnels to hell because they're unsanitary places and hell is a sinful place. So they were like, maybe that's a that's a way we can connect them. Another one, so one, a random article that I won't really name because it wasn't scholarly. It was just kind of on a blog spot. Um, so I don't know how credible it is. Uh, Link <laughs> outhouses with crescent-shaped cutouts to the Jersey Devil. Um, so I will be looking more into that for the blog post. But at the moment, I can't really find much about why devils lurk in outhouses besides the fact that it's an unholy creature And outhouses are typically unsanitary, presumably unholy places where you know God knows what happens in an outhouse. There are tons of songs, though, and lots of books about devil in the outhouse, which is very strange.
1: Fox, have you ever have you ever been in an outhouse before?
0: Yes, because when you go camping, there are some outhouses like there are just like these little outhousey-looking things, I guess, um, where it's just like a single stall.
1: I'm talking like. Shrek out house, four wooden panels. One happens to kind of jimmy open when you pull it the right way and there's just a hole in the ground.
0: Well, not a hole in the ground. We're not animals. There was just like a wooden seat and then you just it's like a porta-potty. Like it's not more or less sanitary than a porta potty.
1: Okay. Um I've been in the super classic hole in the ground, oh. and there's just happy four panels, and I can vouch that when you open that, you kind of feel like you're Going to hell? Like, it's a pretty <laughs> awful experience. So, when I read this, I was like, yeah, I kind of get it.
0: You're like, oh, this makes sense. Imagine if you really need an outhouse and instead you find a portal to hell. It just seems like one of those <laughs> unlikely portals to hell stories, which is also a very good trope.
1: I like that. I like it. But, uh, <laughs> so that was my assumption, anyways. Just the smell alone can make you feel like, oh, Maybe that's where I am right now. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) But I like your deep dive a lot better.
0: My deep dive was fruitless because I was so certain that there had to be something. And what I did find is a lot of local places or newspapers will sometimes sprinkle in folklore about haunted outhouses or seeing the devil in an outhouse, stuff like that. Um, There is a popular folklore in the Americas about how devils can't go into outhouses But nothing really has sources besides just, well, someone said and this is once believed. So I didn't want to use it like as an actual being like, this is an academic fact when I don't really know if it is or not. It's just a fun fact. I think that people really want to make outhouses and
1: devils a thing. It's a weird connection, but hey, we're seeing the connection here once again. (laughs) But anyways, the old man who's Santa, but not Santa. Uh, continued to explain that devils will want the ham for meat, and it is rare in hell. But he should only trade the ham for the hand quern behind the door, which could grind anything. If the man could get it, the old man would teach him how to use it. Who knew that
0: the ring of hell that Dante missed was the one with the hand
1: quern? Uh, by the way,
0: for those unfamiliar, querns were one of the early ways to grind grain, In their most rudimentary form, they were literally just a flat stone bed and a rounded stone that would be used predominantly by women to crush grain, and you would do this over and over again in kind of a crushing motion like you would with a pedestal and a motor. The Romans used a more sophisticated version of it with large concave and convex stones being turned by asses to crush the grain, and this was something that appeared all over in different types of society because... People figured the best way to crush grain was by smashing it with a rock. So you see it in China, you see it in uh, Babylon, you see it in lots of places all around the world that existed kind of independently from each other. It's like the pyramids. People ask, well, how did this innovative tool go around so many different places? Well, people decided that the best way to do a thing was to crush it. So everyone made a very similar version of this kind of tool. And then over time, it became hand cranked. Um, And then eventually animals were using it. And now it's a bit more technological and machine run.
1: But the idea is still the same. And guess what? Rocks were everywhere. So every culture had access to rocks so they could easily. The
0: aliens brought the current to the Irish and to the Babylonians at the same time and to the Chinese. Shh.
1: We're not supposed to admit that we know this information. No, I'm kidding.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But no, so basically people all around the world decided the best way to smash grain open was with a rock.
1: If you get to smash things with rocks, I think you're having a fun day. Uh, So I kind of get the appeal, but you know, it'd also be hard, intensive labor I could see after a while. And so, with this information, the man bravely entered and bargained with one of the devils before finally reaching a deal. Trading the ham for the hand quern, the man quickly left and the old man taught him how to use it. Who knew traveling to and from the underworld was that easy? He ran back home in the early hours of Christmas morning and his wife was relieved to see him for she had been anxiously waiting for his return. He excitedly pulled out the quern and spoke the magic word as he was grinding the quern. It created a tablecloth, meat, ales, all that they could have ever hoped for for a Christmas feast. They created so much food that three days later they decided to throw a feast for their family and friends. When the rich brother saw the feast, he became quite spiteful and suspicious of his brother, who had only a few days earlier begged him for food scraps in God's name. Later in the evening, when the poor brother had drunk too much, the rich brother pressed him for answers. The poor brother told him how he went to hell, as he was told, and he bargained for the hand kern, which could grind anything. The rich brother became obsessed with the kern and demanded to buy it from him. After much negotiating, the poor brother agreed to sell it for $300 when the hay harvest season came. When the hay harvest season eventually came around, the poor brother gave the rich brother the kern but didn't tell him the magic word. Sure enough, later that day when the older brother used it to make herring and broth, it kept creating it without end. Eventually, once the house was completely flooded, the rich brother brought it to his poor brother and demanded he take it back from him. And in classic brother fashion, he agreed, for another $300, that is. So, with his current back and $300 richer, he created all he could have ever wanted. His new super fancy golden farmhouse became famous, and people from all over came to see his incredible kern. One day, a skipper came and asked if the kern could make salt. The man laughed, as it was so simple, and he showed the skipper. Amazed by this, the skipper begged for the kern himself, for if he had it, he would no longer have to travel overseas to ship salt. (sighs) I hear you, man. Work from home jobs are pretty, pretty sweet. See,
0: this is the part where I start to be like, what's going on? Because <laughs> the brother sold it to his brother for $300. He bought it back for $300. And now there's this random skipper guy. who's <laughs> asking for it. And I don't want to give it away. But why would he even consider giving it away when it's something he could give to his children? He could give to his wife. If he dies, his children and great-grandchildren can have it and make money forever. It's just short-term thinking. Why doesn't he use it to make salt? And then he can be the salt merchant instead. So when he gave it to his
1: brother... He knew he was going to get it back. He knew he was going to get it back because he was very clever not to tell him the correct thing. So I don't know if his plan is just to do that again. Just because maybe he likes messing with people at this point. Like if you have everything, (laughs) you kind of get bored, I would assume. So maybe this is just now his new form of entertainment. This is how he
0: gets a rise out of people. He's like, you can have it as long as, you know, you tell me that you want it back after a
1: certain point. Pretty much. So maybe that's what's happening here. I I don't know. He could also just be dumb. It's it's really hard to say. This is also the guy who was told, here, have this piece of ham, now go straight to hell. And he literally just started walking to find it. (laughs) Reluctantly, the owner eventually agreed to selling the hand kern, and the skipper paid thousands of dollars for it. So it's gone up in market value here. <laughs> but the skipper was so excited, he took the quern and left so fast that he didn't get the instructions for it. After sailing out to the sea, the man asked the quern to grind out salt and to do it fast. The quern shot salt out like water, and the ship became full of salt. Of course, the skipper could not stop the kern and the ship sank. So to this day, the kern still sits at the bottom of the sea, grinding away. And that is why the sea is salt. So
0: I read the original title before I read the the summary. Mm -hmm. So I saw the queen that stands and grinds the bottom of the sea. So when I was reading the summary, I was waiting for a queen to appear. And I thought, okay, the skipper is actually going to be a queen in disguise and she's going to drown and just keep making salt. And I was so confused when I got to the end and I was like, where's the queen? Until I realized that the quern was the queen. I had just completely misread it. <laughs> this is also a comeuppance to the brother, I guess, the younger brother, the poor brother, because if he was trying to trick the skipper into buying it like his brother did, creating lots of broth or lots of salt and then panicking and selling it back, then I think maybe he deserved to lose it because it's like those trickster stories where you trick one too many times and you end up sorry, and then you end up the one that gets tricked because you tried to trick other people.
1: Yeah, it's just too bad the skipper seemed to have died in this scenario as well. Like, <laughs> maybe.
0: He drowned, the, and maybe that's why people have salty tears.
1: Oh, in memory like of this. the skipper. I just love how there was a whole story here and then they were like, right, we were supposed to explain why the sea is salt. So here's like two paragraphs. (laughs) Like, here you go. It's almost like when you're writing
0: something and then you completely forget what your plot was until you look at your notes and you're like, oh, and by the way, this also happened.
1: To me... This reads like when I'm writing an essay for school, like I do all this flowery stuff of talking about things I want to talk about, but then I read the rubric and it says, you must include X things. And then I try and shove all those X things in the last little bit.
0: You're like, oh, I missed the prompt. It's fine. Here we go.
1: Here we go. So kind of the same thing, but this is literally how I wrote most of my essays. I was like, I'm going to talk about all these things I want to talk about, but the last paragraph will have everything the teacher actually asked for. You want me
0: to talk about (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. I really enjoy explanatory folk tales and fairy tales because I think they are so much fun and sometimes they're really wild because sometimes they just go in a completely different direction than what you think it is. I mean, if you follow us on Twitter, you see that quite often. We will post little um, like we, I mean, not little, but we do post lots of folk tales and fairy tale snippets, and some of them are just like. This is why the sun is in the sky and the sun chases the moon. Or this is why, you know, seals are, uh, have human cries because someone drowned a human baby once. So lots of interesting <laughs> things. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I use that specific example, but
1: hey, seals do have
0: weirdly human cries. I'm going to be honest.
1: Well, we also just finished talking about seals in our previous episode. It's kind of still on our mind.
0: I mean, this type of tradition is obviously very indigenous. A lot of communities that start off in a location, they try and figure out reasons for why things are the way they are. And so they take their knowledge of the world and they apply it to kind of big supernatural effects. So that's why we have lots of stories from First Nation groups about the moon, um, how, you know, the stars appeared in the sky, the Sky Woman. We have lots of stories from all over Europe about why things are the way they are. And they use quite broad ideas as well. So you can find similar stories all throughout the world because lots of societies, like we said about the, the current the grindstone, lots of societies come to the same conclusions. It's almost like humans think in similar patterns.
1: Whoa, it's like we're not that different after all.
0: Huh. Well this is actually something I have a personal vendetta with is when people try and pinpoint like one specific um origin for a food or for a story. And it's always so much more complicated than that. It's always so much more than just, this food came from this country. Well, yes, but this food can also exist in other places because of travelers, colonization. In some cases, just people decided that putting the same ingredients together made sense. And so you see it a lot. Um with people all over twitter and instagram and facebook and even mastodon now where someone will post something like a food and its origins and people will say well that's not the true origin actually came from here and it's like well actually it came from all over but this is the one specific type we're talking about right now so that's just my two cents that's the same story and i will get into this in my five fantastic finds because some people have argued that this story is actually a Japanese story. But the same story can exist in different formats all around the world. They don't always have to be from a single point, a
1: single origin. It's true. It's like multiple people could have come up with the idea, but they, it's it can be true that one has been more well-established mm-hmm. or well-known, and that's there's nothing wrong with that. It's just we can't always assume everything ties back to that one source. Yeah. But just because it happened to get published and recognized at like, an earlier point or something like that doesn't mean... It's legit. <laughs> yeah, and
0: specifically when we talk about fairy tale collectors, um, like the Grimm brothers, obviously the Norse, um, Mo and Abornson, they're not the original tellers of these tales and they make it quite clear that these tales aren't, you know, their original works most of the time. They are stories that they are collecting. They're stories that they're listening to. Mm -hmm. They're stories that were oral stories. Or maybe they were told by a certain group of people and then they took it and they went around with it. But story, specifically folktales as well, collection is a big part of how we preserve these stories. And so I think when you get a Norse story like this, It might exist in other places because it came from Norway to these other Scandinavian places and from there it spread throughout Europe, through Asia, or it might have been the opposite. Um, But we can't really know that because so much folktale is oral. So this story might have been told for thousands and hundreds of thousands of years before it was ever written down, and we don't know. I mean, obviously the Qur'an and the oldest versions of it that we can find We can always say that we can date things by the things that they mention. So we can date it because we can figure out when, you know, some of the first kerns were found all over Norway. But even then, just like we've modified the word uh, ham into the story, every time a story is told, it's modified a bit. So maybe they took something else and they modified it into kern. We will never know. And that's my TED Talk for
1: today. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to our TED Talk. We're very official. Or tail talk? Did you say tail
0: talk? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Folklore TED Talks. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Number one. As mentioned in the introduction, parts of this story are quite similar to the Grotesonger, or the Mill Song from 13th century Norse sources. It is depicted like a work song, and while it is believed that these were quite common in Norse society, there's only one other one that's depicted in full, and that's about the Valkyries at the loom. However, instead of cloth, they are weaving the entrails of men. In a similar fashion, the mill song also seems to depict the triumph of women over men. At the heart of the Groda Song are two maidens named Fenya and Menya, that came from giants and are giantesses themselves. They claim they had fought in many battles as Valkyrie like figures and had built the fortunes and ruins of many kings. It does not touch upon how they came to be enslaved by King Frodi, but we quickly learn that they are captured. Without pause, he had them sent to his mill house, where the two maidens were forced at the kern to turn and turn, creating a fortune for their king. In some variations, it is a magical kern that actually creates a fortune of gold and wealth. Either way, the two girls turn and turn the kern. When the household falls asleep, Menya starts up a song about who they truly are. They had, after all, played in these very mountains from which the rock of this kern had come from. The two girls had the gift of foresight, and as they worked, they spoke of how Frodi better enjoy his fortune while it lasted. Fenya takes over the song and tells Frodi of an incoming army and how it will burn down his very hall. They turn the current harder, until the stone cracks into pieces. The song ends with the maidens saying that they have milled for long enough, and his fate for them is assured. Clive Tolley's book on the song examines the giantesses and their gift of foresight. It touches upon how some giantesses and gods meddled with human affairs like it was a game of chess. This would explain how they were captured. To see the book, please check out our website, where we will have it linked.
1: Number two. Since this story begins on the day of Christmas Eve, that pretty much makes it a Christmas story for me. So when the poor brother encountered the super helpful old man with a long white beard, I immediately thought that he had to be Santa. But as Fox pointed out, He could also just be a regular guy, who just happens to know exactly what the protagonist needed to hear in that moment. Despite all of my suspicion, there is nothing in the story that firmly proves or disproves him to be Santa Claus. This trope is known as Santa Ambiguity, and the best example of this is from the holiday classic Miracle on 34th Street. This story revolves around a mall Santa, Kris Kringle, and whether or not he is actually Santa Claus. There are small miracles that happen throughout the story that could be explained away through facts and logic, but the endearing saintly actions of Kris Kringle keep characters and the audience wondering, could he really be Santa? This question goes so far to even end up in court by the end of the movie, and even when it's proven in a court of law that he is in fact Santa Claus, it's still not clear to the audience one way or the other. But for both Miracle on 34th Street and today's tale, it doesn't really matter if these kind old men with white beards are Santa or not. They both keep their stories hopeful and bring their own kind of magic to these tales in the end.
0: Number 3. This story falls under ATU-565, which is the magic mill, and its parent trope, kindness rewarded and evil punished. While the story does appear all over Europe, the most interesting variation is in Japan. The story exists in a very close but parallel way to the Norse tale, with its obvious regional differences. To start, the older brother wants to give the younger one away as an adopted husband, which would have been a last-ditch effort where the husband formally joins the wife's family instead of vice versa. It is not something that you see often. Instead of Christmas Eve, the story takes place during the New Year, when a family was expected to have enough food to offer to the gods and to bring prosperity for their New Year. The third and most prominent point for me was that when the brother rejected to give his younger brother anything, the younger one wandered until an old man gave him manjus, or steamed dumplings, also known as mandus, to give to the kobito, little people in a hole. After receiving the millstones from the little people, the man goes back home to his wife, like in the Norse Story, but the older brother does not buy or ask the millstones. He waits until after his brother has thrown a lavish party and steals them. He then has the bright idea to sail away somewhere very far away to make his fortune. However, after stealing the stolen sweets from his brother's house, he felt quite full, and so he made himself some salt. But no one had taught him how to stop the millstones, so eventually he sank to the bottom of the sea. Number
1: 4 While today's tale is surely entertaining and a wonderful example of stories that explain the world around them, you may be starting to wonder, why is the sea so salty anyways? Personality aside, the main source of all the salt in the sea is simply from rocks. When rain falls on the earth, it travels across the land, forming rivers. Along these rivers, water will slowly erode rocks and earth, releasing mineral salts that are picked up and carried to the ocean. And that buildup of salt only continues to build as more and more water washes over the earth and into the ocean in repeating this cycle. While this is one of the biggest reasons for the high salt content in the seas, It's not the only reason. Some of this is also attributed to the vents on the seafloor. Ocean water seeps into these cracks and is heated from the intense heat of the Earth's core. In these processes, a series of chemical reactions take place where water usually loses oxygen, magnesium, and sulfates. But from the nearby rocks, it also picks up metals such as iron and zinc. With this same process, underwater volcanoes can also help contribute to the ocean's high salt levels. Perhaps the C's should take some cholesterol medication for that high sodium content, though. Number five. From Cain and Abel to Cinderella
0: and her stepsisters, all over religion, myth, legends, fiction, and nonfiction, we see stories of good siblings and clearly bad siblings. So why do these stories exist? Well, in the shortest possible terms, it has to do with dualism. By portraying one good character, we have a protagonist that we are rooting for and a very clear good guy. The versions of folklore and fairy tales that we now know likely derived from oral tradition. An easy way to create tension is by having a pair of siblings. The familiar relationship between the siblings makes the cruelty even worse because they're supposed to protect and love one another. However, this love is ever rarely seen. How many fairy tales have siblings murdering, torturing, dismembering, and otherwise harming their siblings? Too many to count. In myths, we have Rome's Romulus and Remus, Egypt's Set and Osiris, from Iran, we have Rostam and Sorab, And in the same breath, we have Azul and Zuko, Starfire and Blackfire. The list just goes on. So if you have siblings and you are in a fairy tale, a folklore, or in a movie, be very, very careful. If you've enjoyed our TED Talk and you want to hear more from us and find out what our next tale will be, come join us anytime on Twitter or Instagram. And we've also recently got a Mastodon under the same name. You can also find us anytime on our website to also link back to our social medias. And if you are old school like Sparrow, you can email us at anytime at Forest at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your questions, comments, or suggestions. And
1: remember, there's always a place for you in the Enchanted Forest.